Christ is born, glorify him. Okay, welcome back everybody to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And uh, it's good to be back with you. Uh, had a couple of weeks where I wasn't feeling so well with the flu, uh, but feeling good now. And so hopefully we'll uh, get ourselves going once again and pick up where we left off the last time. So we've been spending a lot of time speaking about uh, what John describes as joy-making mourning. So the kind of compunction, uh, sorrow for one's sin that ultimately leads us back to God, but also leads to a turning away from the sin in such a way that it brings us kind of freedom. And in that freedom, we come to experience kind of, of joy, uh, that it's not a kind of uh, despondency or something that should lead us into despair. The language is very strong. Uh, but uh, don't let that be off-putting. Uh, I think we have to stay with John here as he leads us through the text to see ultimately uh, what the experience is to be for us as Christian men and women is that there is to be a hatred of sin and a deep sorrow for it, uh, but uh, a hatred and sorrow that is tied more toward to our, our love for God and our desire for him and to please him. It's not rooted in, uh, I think, the, the damage that it does to our self-esteem in the sense that it would lead us then into a kind of despair. And so we want to be very careful about that. In fact, John at some point will warn us against uh, such kind of thinking. So again, we're on uh, page 114, paragraph 28. Those who have obtained mourning in the depth of their being hate their own life as something painful and wearisome and cause of tears and sufferings. And they turn to flee from their body as from an enemy. Now, certainly I think when we hear this, it's hard to, uh, and I don't want to try to, you know, communicate it in such a way as um, uh, to clean it up and make it more acceptable. I think it, it is a hard saying that John is saying that, uh, when a person falls into sin and experiences true contrition, one begins to experience a, a kind of hatred of life in the sense that we realize our own poverty and the depth of that poverty outside of communion with God and sees the, the body as a kind of enemy in the sense of the appetites that often drive us and lead us to make choices and decisions that are contrary to that relationship with God. And so life can begin to, uh, one can begin to experience life as being very trying to say the least, especially when we find ourselves in the grip of certain passions. And uh, for example, if one finds himself driven by the passion of lust, it can become something that is uh, almost an addiction and where one comes to hate it and hate uh, falling into it and despise it and life can become uh, burdensome at that point. Uh, and I think that's true for anyone who ex would experience any kind of addiction, that when, where one feels that there's a loss of freedom uh, to live one's life as one would desire, uh, it can make life feel very weighty. And uh, so certainly even with something like lust, it can make uh, one feel as though you're driven not by 
your desire for God or desire for for holiness or to even love and give yourself in love, but rather driven uh, simply by the physical desire itself and also the imagination and the emotional aspects that are often tied to it as well, rather than having it be tied to something which is relational. And I think seen in this light, we begin to understand what John is saying a little bit more, that life itself can be begin to uh, be experienced as something wearisome. And if you talk to anyone who's been laboring with a particular passion for the course of years and even decades, it can very, uh, begin to be experienced very much like this. Paragraph 29. When we see anger and pride in those who seem to be mourning in a way pleasing to God, then their tears are to be regarded as repugnant to God. For what communion hath light with darkness? So one of the things that tears uh, remove from the heart or free the heart from is anger towards others. When we see our own poverty and our own sinfulness, we also see a kind of radical solidarity that exists between ourselves and others. And we cease to judge others at that point. And if we find ourselves though, uh, mourning or having tears and yet are moved to anger, hostility or resentment towards others, it makes those tears suspect. And John is very clear about that, that it is evidence there that there is still self-esteem, self-love that is uh, within a person's heart. And so the, the tears might are, are then suspect in the sense that they might be giving a person a kind of emotional freedom, but they're not really reflective of true mourning for the sin itself. And uh, when we move into the step on, on anger, I think this becomes even more clear uh, that anger can really take over the heart in such a way that uh, we hold on to little resentments towards towards others and we are driven by them and uh and so something like tears really uh is is something that magnifies i think what is going on within within the heart and uh it won't allow something like anger to be hidden too long uh, before it is exposed number 30 the fruit of spurious compunction is self-esteem, and the fruit of praiseworthy compunction is consolation. So the false kind of sorrow is, is rooted in self-esteem, that we can feel downcast about our sins because they make us see ourselves in a negative light, and we want to free ourselves of that emotional burden. And so we can even engage in certain spiritual practices to do so. Uh, but uh, John, John is telling us here that if there is a kind of self-esteem, again, it makes this that kind of compunction suspect. Uh, it's where we begin to experience consolation that comes from God, hope in God and his mercy that our compunction proves itself to be true, as well as our tears. And again, as we go further on in the text, this becomes more and more important, uh, because when there is a blow to self-esteem, 
it's, it doesn't take a person very long to fall into a kind of despair or self-hatred. Whereas a true compunction is always going to, to lead us into that mercy of God and to trust it in a deeper way. We might experience that blow to self-esteem, uh, but the, the truth of that leads us into the arms of God rather than to try to hide ourselves from him uh, in, a, in a way like Adam and Eve. And uh, even though we know we can't do this, I, I think we want to hide ourselves from everyone and including God at those moments when compunction is simply driven by self-esteem. Number 31, just as fire is destructive of straw, so are pure tears destructive of all material and spiritual impurity. So it's a pretty powerful thing to say that if those tears are genuine and have been formed and shaped by the grace of God over time, that they can destroy all spiritual impurity and, and material impurity. So, you know, any thought or, or, uh, or physical impurity, it will cleanse us up over the course of time. And again, this is why the fathers value uh, this kind of compunction and the tears that go, go with it and, and why John would describe it as a second baptism that it has that kind of power to purify the mind, the heart, and, and the body itself, the appetites as well. And so as we go through these, you begin to get a sense then that it isn't a kind, simply a kind of emotionalism and it's not a, a self-hatred that is being fostered here. It's the, if there is a hatred, it's directed towards the sin itself. Number 32, many of the fathers say that the question of tears, especially in the case of beginners, is an obscure matter and hard to ascertain, as tears are born in many different ways. For instance, there are tears from nature, from God, from adverse suffering, from praiseworthy suffering, from vainglory, from licentiousness, from love, from remembrance of death and from many other causes. So, you know, John is telling us that the fathers as a whole warn us not, not to be taken in too easily by the first tears that are shed, that they, their origin uh, can be found in, in many different things, some uh, spiritually very positive and powerful, but others rooted again uh, in the emotional life or in our experiences in this world that are simply difficult. And, you know, one wouldn't criticize uh, tears for, for those reasons, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're rooted in compunction. We can have uh, adverse uh, kinds of suffering uh, in this life, he tells us that we might be going through trials, you know, physical illness, something along those lines that give rise to tears. And that is certainly natural to us as human beings, but we wouldn't necessarily equate that with, with compunction itself. And, uh, and so John, uh, even though he talks about this, perhaps more than any of the, of, of the other fathers that you'll come across, uh, he's not quick to lead us down that path 
in to prizing over uh, giving them too much weight or overpraising them in terms of their value, just because they can come from so many different sources that they need to be tested like anything else within the spiritual life. Ren. I am finding this just so hard. If there is a hurt or injustice that at times brings up intense feelings of resentment, is that going to be a constant impediment to union with God for as long as that hurt lasts. I guess it just makes me feel a bit hopeless. Now, I understand, I think uh, this is why we would want to be careful on how we read it. And even especially this last paragraph that simply because tears arise out of adverse suffering, say if somebody has treated us poorly or if we've gone through an experience that has been very wounding, the wound uh, and the ex experience of that wound might last for many years, and we might struggle with feelings uh, of resentment. Uh, and But it's not going necessarily to be an impediment to our experiencing union with God. And I think this is why John is making the distinction here. And he, he, it's, it's not only, uh, you know, spurious uh, tears that he's trying to make us be aware of, but also natural forms of tears, as I mentioned, as in physical suffering or emotional suffering, that these are inevitable in the course of life, and we shouldn't try to suppress them, and simply because they aren't the same thing as tears that arise out of compunction, it doesn't mean that they're an impediment to our experiencing union with God, or that the root of them is pride or self-esteem. It could, can be from very real wounds from life itself in this world. And so I, I would want you to have hope in the, in the face of this, that you know, I think we've all gone through experiences where those wounds can be very deep. And even though we move on in our life, we can experience the pain of them and carry that pain with us. And it's, it's not as though we're even giving ourselves over to resentment. It can be the nature of the wound itself that uh, even though we've moved on in our life and perhaps are not vindictive about it, uh, we could still bear the scars of say relationships that have been broken or where there's been betrayal and uh, on some level that we are always going to carry those things. We are called to love and give ourselves in love to God and others in the face of them, but we can still bear the scars of them throughout the course of our life. And so don't allow what John is saying here to make you fear that because tears arise out of these experiences that it makes all of, all of your tears uh, suspect. Uh, because that's not what he's saying. I think he's just trying to bring some clarity to us, that we don't jump to the conclusion that the tears that we are having are rooted in compunction for one's sin. Did you have a little follow-up to that, though? I would want you to have an opportunity to add anything. You don't necessarily have to type it if you don't want. Anything? I'm good. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> that didn't sound like you're so good. <laughs> but, uh, uh, no, I understand. It's hard. 
you know, uh, the John's language, especially since he's speaking to monks and those who have entered into this life uh, precisely to do battle with sin, you know, he speaks with a kind of sharpness and he makes these distinctions because he doesn't want them to fall into delusion when it comes to engaging in this kind of spiritual battle. Uh, but I think as we read it, we, we want to be sensitive to what our experience uh, of living in the world is like and the complexity of what he's talking about here, both on a spiritual level and an emotional level. So I'm, I'm glad that you brought up what you did, that there are deep wounds and scars that we bear throughout the course of our life. And uh, we shouldn't fear that, that God does not understand these things or that he doesn't see the root of them and the cause of them, or that they in and of themselves are going to prevent us from experiencing that deep and intimate union with him. In fact, they can often be the vehicle through which we experience that deep intimacy with him. It's often, our, it's where, what is that quote? I think you know it well, because you've written it down a lot. It's that one from Augustine, you know, that- Oh uh, yeah, in my deepest wound, I saw your glory and it dazzled me. Right, in my deepest wound, I saw your glory and it dazzled me. And uh, I think, you know, certainly John wouldn't disagree with that. His writing style is obviously different from Augustine. Uh, but uh, I think he would agree with the truth of that statement that our wounds are something that attract the gaze of God, uh, attract the gaze of love, you know, uh, in order that we might be healed. And sometimes it can feel the opposite to us, that they, that they become an obstacle to our loving or experiencing the love of God. And as often as I've talked to people over the course of the last 30 years, it's it, it is often very difficult to believe that, that God does not find our wounds to be something that are repulsive or off-putting, but that he desires uh, to enter into them and has entered in, into them in a radical way in order that we might not experience them in isolation. And I think sometimes we pull back in the experience of them because we know the pain of them, that it can become very hard to see God at various times. And, you know, I think sometimes having experienced the tears of compunction then can also give us a greater freedom when we experience tears for other reasons to see and experience the presence of God. That God is just as concerned about the wounds that we experience, not only from our sins, but from the sins of others or from the hardships of living in a fallen world. And we, we want to remind ourselves of that. Sometimes we will project onto God a very harsh image. And, uh, and, uh, and so I think it's good for us to pause and to look at these distinctions that John is making with you know some clarity. Yeah, and you know another thought I kind of had as you were talking was that this gift of tears, John isn't presenting it as a requirement for salvation or a requirement for union with God. Like the gift of tears is um, 
it's like it's a very particular spiritual gift and just like we remember when we had that like tough conversation all about like the religious life and its subjective superiority because of like the nature of its reflection of God and all of that I mean and there's spiritual gifts that are subjectively higher right and so it's like the gift of tears is one of these gifts that like is given to the saints you know and it's like a mark of the saints and a mark of this radical humility and purity so it's like maybe there's a humility too and like okay well you know if you're crying and deeply you know upset but you also have this like immense anger and stuff well maybe you don't have the gift of tears you know because the gift of tears is really given to the pure of heart but just because you don't have the gift of tears doesn't mean you're cut off from God. It just means you don't have the gift of tears. Like, right. it's not the I end think of the that, world. That's right. And I think that's why Paul makes the distinction that he does in his writings about the different gifts that are given to people. And I think we have to be very careful about that. And John is, you know, later on, he will talk about that. Not everybody, you know, can squeeze out more than a single tear in their whole lifetime. And it doesn't mean that they lack lack compunction and sorrow for their sin. Uh, but, you know, I've had people over time come to me and say, you know, they've gone to charismatic meetings before. And, you know, pe the people are experiencing a kind of ecstatic kind of form of prayer. And it made them feel, they wondered, is there something wrong with me? Because this does not emerge that this isn't part of my spirituality or I, I don't, my uh, uh, love of God is not expressed in this kind of way. And having to say sort of the same thing to them, absolutely not. That, uh, you know, simply because one cannot produce uh, such things on demand or, or ever does not mean that one's relationship with God is limited or that there's a lack of love for God. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes we can talk about the spiritual life often in that fashion, especially when it's talked about in certain forums or, in a, you know, this kind of popularized way. And uh, and I think it can leave people feeling as though that there uh, is something lacking in them spiritually because of it. All right. We'll move on to number 33. Stripped by the fear of God, let us train ourselves in all these ways and acquire for ourselves pure and guileless tears over our dissolution. For there is no dissimulation or self-esteem in them, but on the contrary, there is purification, progress in love for God, washing away of sin and dispassion. So you hear nothing here in John's writing about despondency and despair, that as this kind of compunction begins to develop and it tears over our sin, but also the, the death that comes as a consequence of sin, that these are things that we would naturally and spiritually mourn over that as we do so, what it leads to is purification, progress in the love of God, washing away of sin and dispassion, a greater freedom from being driven by the passions in our life. So the fruit of this is all positive uh, as John describes it. 
that there's a kind of freedom to love and give oneself in love that emerges from this. So that even though it is a uh, can be a very painful process, that what arises out of it is this greater capacity to love God, that there is no impediment because of our fixation on particular sins or ourself, uh, but we become free to give ourselves even when that, that love is not requited. And we see this in certain saints, you know, there's a kind of peacefulness and joy within them, humility, regardless of how others respond to them in their day-to-day -day life. And, you know, often we can only understand this through the description of the opposite of it. You know, what our day-to-day -day experience is when somebody doesn't respond to something that we've done for them or given them, or if somebody speaks to us with a harsh word, we're often very quick to respond. But the idea that we could be free of anger to such an extent that, you know, we, we might see the anger of the, the other or their, their harshness, but not, not uh, direct, uh, you know, our feelings towards them in a hostile way. That's, that's true, true freedom and this capacity to love. It's not surprising if mourning begins with good tears and ends with bad, but it is praiseworthy if reprehensible and natural tears are goaded on to spiritual tears. People inclined to vainglory understand this problem clearly. So we might start out in, in the spiritual life and our vainglory might produce tears that really are focused upon ourselves. But by the grace of God, even though that that might be true, and even vainglory might be something that we struggle with, so this kind of self-image, even on a spiritual level, that uh, God can even use what is, uh, you know, less than perfect to help purify the heart over the course of time. So there may be a mixture there of vainglory within our tears that over the course of time and by the grace of God, uh, we can be brought to a greater freedom. Do not trust your fountain of tears before your soul has been perfectly purified. For wine cannot be trusted when it is drawn straight from the vats. And so, you know, wine has to breathe you know, for a period of time. And, you know, so a soul has to, you know, live in this kind of freedom of purity of heart before the, the kind of tears can flow from it that are, are truly uh, something that, are, that, that would be cleansing. And so until we've struggled over the course of years, perhaps the majority of our life, we shouldn't really expect that our, this kind of gift would be perfected within us. And again, that gives us kind of freedom from the false expectation that somehow we should have all the gifts that are described in the latter, uh, you know, uh, perfectly uh, manifest in our life, or that we should somehow be able to jump up multiple rungs of the ladder at a time. You know, we might go up a few rungs, we might fall down 
couple times, strive back and have to strive back up. You know, and that's why the image, you know, behind me is a powerful one because it certainly shows the demons, you know, trying to pull us away from God and away from the spiritual life, but also the angels striving to encourage us in that struggle. That despite our imperfections, that we wouldn't give up the battle. Number 36, no one will dispute that all our tears, according to God, are profitable, but we shall only know at the time of our death what the profit is. So here, even on you know, a deeper level, we are not to judge the quality of them. We leave that to God. You know, what we strive for in the spiritual life is true sorrow for one's sin, a hatred for one's sin, a love for God, and we seek the freedom that comes to us from embracing the grace of God and not to try to judge the, the value or the quality of certain gifts uh, on our own. We leave, leave that to God and you know, place all things in his hands and entrust them to his mercy. That it's always a dangerous thing, I think, for us to uh, begin to evaluate ourselves spiritually, you know, whether in a negative way or a positive way you know, our spiritual growth, you know, it might not be what we think it is. So it's always best to leave it uh, uh, to the hands of God. He who wends his way in constant mourning, according to God, does not cease to feast daily, but eternal weeping awaits him who does not cease to feast bodily. So, he who wends his way in constant mourning to God does not cease to feast daily. So feast in a particular way upon the grace of God and the mercy of God. Eternal weeping waits him who does not cease to, uh, cease to feast bodily. So a person who does not fast is not going to experience the tears of, of mourning for one's sin. But if you're nourishing yourself upon the tears of true compunction, that is when you are going to know blessings from God. And so it sort of turns things, you know, of course, as so often is the case, on, on their head. You know, that while we might weep within this world and no sorrow within this world, what is promised to us is far greater. You know, uh, a joy that knows no end and uh, a, a peace that uh, no, knows of no wounds or no, no, no tears, you know, when we see love face to face. Number 38, convicts in prison have no joy or delight and true monks have no feast on earth. Perhaps that is why that excellent mourner sighing said, bring my soul out of prison that it may rejoice henceforward in thine ineffable light. And here he's quoting Psalm 141. And so in this world, the true monks have no feasts. And, you know, I think we're reminded when we read this of St. Isaac the Syrian, uh, of saying that, uh, you know, while we're on this earth, there, there is no Sabbath. 
in the sense that there's no Sabbath rest from our striving to live in accord with the will of God and to live a life of love and of prayer. And uh, so a monk like a convict is, is not going to experience many of the joys of this world because the focus is on pursuing that which has eternal value and that which endures unto eternity. eternity. And so there is, uh, if there's a hunger within the soul, it's for the ineffable light here in quoting the psalmist, that what desire, one desires is the light of God that, uh, you know, that there is nothing that compares to that within the world. And the, the more one begins to experience that in the spiritual life, the more that one begins to long for it. And, you know, I think as one progresses in the spiritual life, there, there is also this sense of the darkness of the things of this world that are contrary to God. And so there becomes this greater desire and longing within the heart to possess that fully, you know, to taste it as we can in and through the communion that we experience with God now, you know, through the sacramental life, through prayer, but longing ultimately for the fullness of it within the kingdom. Okay. Any thoughts or comments? Okay. Number 39, be like a king in your heart seated high in humility and, and commanding laughter. Go and it goes and sweet weeping, come and it comes and our tyrant enslave the body. Do this and it does it. I think that bears reading a second time because it, it uh, sounds a little confusing. Be like a king in your heart, seated high in humility. So, internally, we want to make our throne humility, not as a worldly king, you know, having our life rooted in power or the things that we have in terms of worldly wealth, but rather having our, our, our wealth being rooted in Christ himself and uh, commanding laughter, you know, laughter not of the things of, of the kingdom, but uh, of, of the things of this world that have no, no value, that, you know, that we mourn uh, over what is possibly lost, you know, but our, our laughter, well, let me think about this again. I think actually what he's talking about is commanding laughter that belongs to that of the kingdom. And so, and that arises out of mourning, which we hear in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn, they, they shall rejoice. And so the humility commands mourning for our sin, which then gives way to the true joy of the kingdom. Uh, let me see, he goes on to say here, uh, go and it goes and sweet weeping. So he's making reference here to the centurion who's talking about his th authority over others. I say to one under my command, go and he goes. And so that the, the one who has humility and, and throne is going to at 
uh, his command be able to produce the, the tears of mourning over one's sins. And, uh, and so isn't going to be driven by the passions, but rather by the desire for God. Come and it comes. And our tyrant enslaved the body do this and does it. So the body no longer, if when humility is enthroned, the body and its appetites have no, do not direct us, but our, our soul, our spirit directs the body and guide, guides it. So once we have reached a level of dispassion, so we have humility of heart, we have purity of heart and dispassion, freedom from the passions, then we're rightly ordered. Everything is rightly ordered toward God, our bodily desires, but also everything spiritual too that leads us to him. I'm sorry, it's been a while since I read that paragraph. It's a little, little bit confusing. And again, it bears meditating upon, but you see the connection there to the centurion's discussion with Christ. You know, when Christ says, I will come to your house and the centurion says, no, you know, I, I know you have this authority and our, our authority is, is that of humility. He who is clothed in blessed and grace-filled mourning as in a wedding garment knows the spiritual laughter of the soul. So if the wedding garment is mourning for one's sin and we've clothed ourselves in this, then when the bridegroom comes, we are prepared to receive him. That he comes, you know, precisely to console the heart, but to draw the, 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 the bride to himself into union with him. And so if we're clothed with the wedding garment, then we're prepared to receive him. And it's an interesting take, certainly, on the, the scripture passage about the, the feast uh, and the, the image of the need to be uh, dressed or enter with the, the wedding, wedding garment. And so, you know, the, the fathers give us and John gives us this kind of clarity. What is that? What is it that we would want to clothe ourselves in, in order that uh, we might be attractive to the heavenly bride, bridegroom? And blessed mourning, John is telling us, is this is what makes the, the soul prepared to receive what the bridegroom alone can offer. Number 41. Can anyone be found who has spent all his days in the mon monastic life so piously that he has never lost a day or an hour or a moment? but has spent all his time for the Lord, bearing in mind that never in your life can you see the same day twice. So, you know, even in a monastery, John is asking, is there really a monk who hasn't wasted time, lost moments, days, weeks, even months through distraction or toiling at things or uh, that really have nothing to do with God or the state of one's soul. And, uh, and to, to think that somehow that we can gain, gain that back or have those days twice over. 
And I think, you know, this is an important question to ask us ourselves because, you know, we've often talked about how we've become experts at wasting time or at being distracted. And, you know, once a moment passes, it's gone. You know, what is available to us is only the present. You know, why worry about the past or the things that have happened in the past or about an uncertain future? You know, all that we have in reality is what is right uh, present to us in this moment. This is the only thing that we can control and only control in the sense of how we give ourselves over to, to God in love in that moment, whatever it holds for us. It might be the, the most, most mundane of things that uh, is taking place but are we uh, attentive, are our hearts directed to God in that moment? Or have we become fragmented and uh, distracted internally that we, we don't see God or aren't aware of him? It can be a sort of a frightening and jarring thing, I think, when we become self-aware and it, all of a sudden realize that we haven't thought about God throughout the course of, of, of the day, that we've lost ourselves in our work or what is in our mind so deeply that we've lost sight of God. And that means that that thing, those things, whatever their value, have grown so large that they've blocked out God for us. And so they can even be good things and things that we would want to be attentive to. But we are to see those good things is coming from God and seeking to see them in and through the eyes of God and the grace that he gives us. And so to live from moment to moment uh, in, in union, communion with him, this is what we're seeking. Not episodic love and not being in this episodic relationship with him, you know, on Sunday or even daily at certain times, but from moment to moment because that's where we live our, our lives. Okay. Blessed is the monk who can lift up his, the eyes of his soul to the spiritual host. But if he tr is truly safe from falling, who from the remember, I'm sorry, but he is truly safe from falling, who from the remembrance of sin and death constantly moistens his cheeks with living waters from his bodily odds. And it is not hard for me to believe that the second condition leads to the first. So a person who is truly safe has the remembrance of sin and death that constantly gives rise to these spiritual tears. And those who have taken this path actually come then to that first condition, have their eyes lift up, uh, eyes of their souls lifted up to see the spiritual host. That th those who remember death, those who remember their sin, whose eyes are moistened because of them, also gain a kind of purity of heart and clarity of sight. Bless, you know, blessed are the pure of heart, they shall see God. 
And so a heart that has been purified by these tears of mourning come to see divine things. And I think this is why we find in the saints this capacity to read souls or a kind of, you know, some of the Eastern fathers use the word clairvoyance. And I don't typically like the word because of what it's associated with in our, in our day. But this kind of clairvoyance of being able to see you know, uh, things that are coming in the future in a person's life or within the world, that the purity of vision that they have has been so touched by the grace of God that there's no impediment there uh, for them uh, to, to see the truth in its fullness. I have seen shameless petitioners and beggars with clever words, soon incline even the hearts of kings to compassion. And I've seen men poor and needy in virtue with words not clever, but rather humble, vague, and stumbling, call shamelessly and persistently from the depths of a desperate heart upon the heavenly king, and by their violence force his immovable nature and compassion. So what John is saying is that, you know, within this world, that those who are clever can, with their words, move people to do their will. But in our relationship with God, such things are not required. That rather when one, as it, was, as it were, does violence to oneself in, in the sense of humbly acknowledging one's poverty, when one fasts, when one prays, that all of these things move God to act on our behalf, that they show God a humble soul. So it's not cleverness, it's not intellectual ability, you know, it's not a worldly wisdom, but it's rather a humble soul that desperately seeks out what God alone can offer, that allows us to do the impossible, which is to, to move the heart of God to compassion. And it's a kind of an extraordinary thing to say. And John acknowledges it. He says, their violence forced his inviolable nature and compassion. You know, the God, his unmovable nature, that these tears and these uh, words of humility move, move God, not just mountains. Number 44, he who in his heart is proud of his tears and secretly condemns those who do not weep is like a man who asks the king for a weapon against his enemy and then commits suicide with it. This, I think, was the most powerful statement in the, in the, in the step, because it's, it's saying, you know, what worth is this? And, and far from having worth, if you, if you condemn a person for not having this particular gift, it's like using a weapon to commit suicide. It's really a, a, a powerful thought, and I think it can be applied to pretty much any other thing as well. If we, we are to turn our eyes upon others and judge them or judge their spiritual life, 
you know, to take it upon ourselves to judge what is within another person's heart uh, in any way. You know, it's, it's like taking up a, a, a weapon and using it against our, ourselves. You know, it's been interesting, you know, I've, you know, Pope Benedict has been ill, you know, he's fading because of age. And uh, I've, I've seen some pe people say some pretty harsh things directed toward him, you know, and that about him having to answer that God will provide him grace to answer to God for his abdication. And I thought, wow, it's, that's a really powerful and harsh thing to say about what is in another person's heart and the circumstances that led a person to take certain actions. None of us has any knowledge whatsoever about why Pope Benedict stepped down when he did, you know, whether it was ill health or any number of things. And in any case, it doesn't matter because, you know, it's not for us to know what is going on within his heart or the reasons behind it. And, and yet there seems to be an ease that we have in making these kinds of judgments about others and their actions and behaviors uh, that we have no right uh, to make. Even when we see somebody commit something that we know is a sin from the externals of it, we are told over and over again by the fathers not to make a judgment about them. We, we simply do not know what is going on within their heart, what has led them to a certain course of behavior. And we might mourn it, uh, you know, that, uh, and, you know, we might pray for them, but still we, we're not allowed to judge. Number 45, my friends, God does not ask or desire that man should mourn from sorrow of heart, but rather that out of love for him, he should rejoice with spiritual laughter. Remove the sin and the tear of sorrow is superfluous for your eyes. What is the use of a bandage when there is no wound? Before his transgression, Adam had no tears, just as there will be none after the resurrection when sin will be abolished. For pain, sorrow, and sighing will then have fled away. Now that is probably the most beautiful thing that John has said and uh, draws, I, I think it tempers everything that we've read in such a way that it allows us to see it with a kind of clarity that, you know, tears emerge because out of, because of the reality of sin and that we live in a fallen world and we know the pain and the sorrow of that. And there will come a time when every tear will be wiped away and that we should ex expect such things. Uh, you know, if there was no sin, then the, the tears would be superfluous. And the, the reason that we have them is because of sin. And in, in this sense, we see them as a gift because of their cleansing, cleansing power. 
in some I have seen mourning, and in others I have seen mourning for lack of mourning. Though having it, they are as if they were without it, and through this splendid ignorance they remain inviolate. And of them it is said, the Lord maketh wise the blind. So John is saying that there, there may be those who uh, do not even recognize that they are mourning. They may not produce tears, and, but because they are ignorant of it and do not see it, they remain inviolate. They remain untouchable by pride that could undermine their compunction. And so uh, the Lord maketh wise the blind, that in their blindness, they actually come to see the truth and they come to know a freedom uh, from the possibility of losing the gift because they don't see it. And I think for a lot of reasons, God does not allow us to see certain things that in his providence he's doing within our mind and heart and allow us even to understand why we are going through the things that we go through in our life because they are producing certain things within us spiritually that we might be blind to but we still experience the fruit of them and that's more important for us and you know this can be frustrating I think in, in life and in the spiritual life as a whole, because we can feel like we are walking in the dark, that we are blind, that we can't see what God is doing or why he's drawn us down a particular path that does not seem to be fruitful or like it could possibly be fruitful or accomplish anything within this world. And, uh, but it might be solely out of God's mercy that he prevents us from seeing that because the fruit of what is being produced there is so great and so valuable and precious that it's better for it to remain hidden from, for, from our eyes. This takes a lot of humility, I think, to hold fast to that path and a, a lot of trust in God. You know, to be able to walk that path, to continue to pray, to strive for the life of virtue, even though we see no worldly benefits from it and perhaps cannot see the spiritual benefits of it either. And we might find ourselves asking on a daily basis, why? You know, why this path? Why this cross? And yet behind it can be an extraordinarily precious gift that God is giving us. And it might be simply the gift of hope, you know, of holding on in, in the face of darkness and not seeing that it is so, so precious, that it allows us to endure through the things of life as a whole. Any comments? Okay. Tears often lead frivolous people to pride, and that is why they are not given to some. And such people seeking tears in vain consider themselves unfortunate and condemn themselves to sighing, lamentation, sorrow of soul, deep grief, and utter dismay, all of which 
though profitably regarded by them as nothing, can safely take place the place of tears. So, you know, better for a person to find themselves frustrated and experiencing grief and, as he says here, dismay, uh, than falling into this kind of frivolous attitude uh, because that's their temperament or what they're given, given to do. And so this struggle uh, with this kind of grief takes the place of tears, which again is a comforting thought, you know, that it's not, not as though we have to produce these, you know, as we were talking about early, earlier to reach a certain level of sanctity, that God can bring them about in accord, again, in accord with his wisdom and his providence without our shedding a tear, that he can bring about the fruit of compunction without them. And finally, for this evening, paragraph 48. If we watch carefully, we shall often find a bitter joke played on us by the demons. For when we are full, they stir us up to compunction. And when we are fasting, they harden our heart so that being deceived by spurious tears, we may give ourselves up to indulgence, which is the mother of passions. We must not listen to them, but rather do the opposite. So, you know, it's the demons. And this is why we, we don't want to overvalue or be quick to, to judge the, the reality of these tears because, you know, the, the demons can, when we've fallen away from fasting and we've given ourselves over to eating in abundance, all of a sudden we're weeping like babies, you know, and shedding immense tears. But uh, all of it is to sort of keep us along that path. But then can, they can also lead to a kind of hardened heart for those uh, who are fasting, but their hearts, you know, they produce tears, but their hearts are, aren't really, have not been softened by true compunction. And so it, it makes them spurious and of, of no value whatsoever. And so we have to struggle to do the opposite of, of what the demons would put before us. You know, if we find ourselves getting emotional after, you know, falling into gluttony, you know, not, not to follow that, that path, you know, rather to, to strive to order our passions, to acknowledge humbly, you know, our need to discipline the body there. But if we find our hearts, you know, filled with anger or hardened, you know, not to trust the tears there, even if we have been fasting. So that's a lot for one evening, but I, I, I hope some of these, uh, especially a, a few of these here help to present what John is saying in a certain light. Uh, and clarifying how we are to see and value the tears, but also what God's purpose is in, in them. You know, it's not that we lead these miserable lives, but that ultimately that it leads us to rejoicing, you know, and true joy of heart. 
you know, the, the tears arise out of the fact that we live in this fallen world. And so we don't want to walk around as morose figures, you know, and, you know, gloomy uh, just for the sake of being gloomy or because we think somehow, you know, that that's what's being said here. We want to be very clear about what the, the source of those tears are and why, why they would come. Any questions or comments whatsoever? It's not likely something that you're going to read about in very many spiritual books or hear people talk about. I don't think I've ever heard a group on tears, the gift of tears. Ashley writes, do you think the grace that leads to compunction is stopped by a division in one's heart? Like we can want to be truly contrite for sins, but also have a hidden attachment to sin, which allows for attention to present itself. But maybe we think about it as a frustration or failure, when in reality, it's a matter of God's timing. Hmm. Do you think that the grace that leads to compunction is stopped by a division in one's heart. Well, I think I would say absolutely yes to that. And especially in light of what John has been saying throughout the, the text, that there can be hidden and mixed motives. And as you mentioned here, you know, a kind of hatred, but also love or attachment for sin that then becomes a, a kind of source of division there in one's heart, that even though we are disturbed by the sin itself, we can be, let's take it back even a step further and say, we can be attached to the things that lead to the sin. And so we can be mourning on one level at having committed the sin, but deep in our hearts still be attached to the things that lead to it. And this can be the, the division I think that you, you speak about. And, uh, you know, if it's in God's timing, it's his revealing to us gradually that attachment to the things that lead to sin, that we can be people of contradiction and, you know, love and hate the same things at the same time. And uh, God in his timing has to reveal that to us uh, in such a way that we learn to struggle with it without it crushing us or discouraging us in the spiritual life, that we can see those contradictions within ourselves and keep moving forward, even though we, we see them and see how strong they are, knowing that, you know, God by his grace is capable of, of helping us overcome them. Okay. All right. Uh, Thanks for being you know, so patient with this text. This is you know, a very challenging one. Not that John hasn't been challenging as a whole, but again, it's, it's worth it. Uh, when we come to the, the end of this step, and certainly when we come to the end of the ladder as a whole, there's such a beautiful portrait, I think, of the spiritual life that's put before us that it makes the work you know, uh, certainly worth it. Okay. All right, why well, don't we close there as always with our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May I want to God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Thanks.